or do what I say and not as I do. Anytime a, a leader says that, the, the followers automatically want to question the soundness of that individual's advice. If you're wondering why your leader is not taking up his or her own advice, then you're going to be left wondering why you should do so. Right? There's something wrong with having a workout trainer who wants nothing to do with physical fitness. Right? That doesn't make any sense. There's, there's something wrong with a guy who has a horrible jump shot trying to teach you how to perfect your jump shot. How many of you want to hire a health and wellness personal consultant who's supposed to provide you with a meal plan and yet happens to be noticeably unhealthy? Right? No one wants that. We all desire a leader who is going to, to live his or her lifestyle in such a way that they are modeling for us how we are to live our own lifestyles. Well, this is where Paul's life comes into play. We've been going through uh, the letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter to the Thessalonians. And here in, in our passage tonight, we see Paul's leadership put on display. Paul's leadership among the churches was exemplary, right? He was modeling the remarkable labor for the gospel in the midst of suffering, for the good of the church, to the glory of God. That, that was Paul's life. He was an example and a model. And if you remember from last week, his model that he provided for the church in Thessalonica, it was actually effective, we read in chapter 1 that the Thessalonians saw his way of living and they, they, they followed his example. They were seeing Paul's example and they were imitating it. In our passage tonight, what we see is a, a full-on... Uh, we, we have Paul's uh, model uh, that, that he is placing before the church put on display. This is the model which the church in Thessalonica imitated. So if you're not there already, we're in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I would encourage you to turn there with me, and uh, let me pray one more time as we jump into our passage. Father, we are so thankful for your word, and we're so thankful for letters like this one here in uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're so grateful for the example that Paul provides us provides us an example of someone who is working hard for the sake of the gospel, uh, for the sake of the church, and to your glory. And so we pray that as we work through this passage tonight, as we look through this passage, that you would encourage us and help us to exemplify what Paul exemplified for us. Help us to follow his example well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in chapter 2, verse 1, follow along with me. Here's what we read. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is the witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, 
though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own child, so being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So what do we see here? Let me give a quick overview of what Paul says about his own ministry in these uh, verses. So I want to just recount what we, what we have here. In verses 1 through 2, Paul, again, for probably the third time already in this short letter, has described the fact that he proclaimed the gospel to the Thessalonians in the midst of suffering. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul's motivation was rooted in the glory of God. Verses 5 to 7, we see that he did not seek to glorify himself, but he sought to care for the church. In verses 8 and 9, we see that he shared the gospel and his life with the Thessalonians. And then verses 10 and 12, we see that his life and his words were informed by the gospel for the church's good. So let me just let you uh, in on something that happened to me as I was studying this passage. As I began working through this text on my own, I began to think that what Paul was doing here was he was providing uh, the Thessalonians with an example of what their leaders ought to, to do. Like this is how your leaders ought to live their lives. That's kind of how I was working through this text at first. I thought that he meant, here's my example This is what your church leaders ought to uh, do. I thought he was telling the Thessalonians to look for leaders in your midst who who model their lives after mine. And yet, after I studied this passage more and more, it became clear to me that Paul is not only providing an example for the leaders in the church to follow and to imitate. He is actually providing every single individual in the church in an example uh, by which they ought to live their lives. Remember what we saw last year in chap- or last week in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So Paul is, is not merely providing a portrait of what church leadership ought to look like. He's providing us with an example of what every single member in the church should seek to emulate. We saw this same exact thing last week. Remember, the health of the church, the vitality of the church is not merely dependent on the church leaders and the pastors. The health of a church, the health of a congregation is dependent on every single individual in the church. And so when we see Paul modeling for us how we ought to live our lives, this is relevant to everyone in this room, not merely a pastor, not merely some uh, ministry leader. This provides all of us with a model that we are to follow. And this is important because sometimes when we read about Paul 
or other apostles like Paul, what tends to happen is we start to read about uh, these individuals and we think that people like Paul, you know, he's the exception. He's kind of what many of us would probably consider some sort of like super Christian. Right? He, he lived his life in such a way that uh, I am never going to be able to live up to this example that Paul provided for us. I, I'm never going to be able to do that. But that's not actually the case. The truth is that Paul is commending the members of the church in, in Thessalonica for following his example. Right? They saw his example and they followed it. And so the, the book of Thessalonians in many ways is a, a long commendation to those members of that church saying, you are doing well in following my example. And now you are providing everyone in uh, Asia the, the example of your faith. So with all that in view, we need to keep in mind that Paul's example here is for us. It's not just for the super Christians. It's not just for the pastors. It's not not just for the missionary or the ministry leader. It's for every single individual in this room. So with that said, let me summarize what we find here with one uh, sentence. I think it'd be helpful if you read it. It's in the notes in front of you. Uh, This is just a, a one sentence summary of everything we see in these 12 verses. Here we see that Paul modeled remarkable labor for the gospel in the midst of suffering for the good of the church to the glory of God. I think that statement summarizes everything that we see in these 12 verses. So let me read it one more time. Paul's model was one of remarkable labor in the midst of suffering for the good of the church to the glory of God. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to walk through this statement and I want to show you the ways in which this passage actually supports that statement. So we're just going to break it down uh, one line at a time. So the first thing that we see here in this passage is that Paul, he provided a model of remarkable labor for the gospel. Look at verses 8 to 10. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers." Paul was an example of remarkable labor for the gospel. You know, we live in a a culture and we live in a a society where hard labor is actually on the decline. So think about this. Because of technological advances, uh, we are enabled to work jobs, by and large, many of us here are able to work jobs that are void of difficult, back-breaking labor. And we can be thankful for that, right? Now we have machines and we have equipment that is capable of digging huge trenches. We don't have to just be out there with shovels, digging massive trenches. I I was thinking of the the railway system that spread all the way across the country. Before all of these machinery, uh, you, you know, pieces of equipment were actually invented. And there were literally people just trekking across the entire country with like sledgehammers, beating in you know, the the railway system all the way across the country. 
I think quite honestly, we can be thankful that technological technology has advanced and we don't have to do that anymore. Like that is a good thing, right? I don't think we need to beat ourselves up because uh, we don't have to work uh, physically as hard as generations that went before us. However, I think there is something to say about the fact that so many people in our culture simply milk the hard work of our ancestors who have gone before us and made life so remarkably easy in comparison with what life was like 100, 200, 300 years ago. People nowadays can simply get away with being far more lazy than people were in the past. You can be lazy and you don't necessarily have to reap the consequences of poverty and bankruptcy. We live in a society that is filled with opportunities for remarkable leisure rather than remarkable labor. Think about it. I mean, full-grown adults can get away with playing video games and watching Netflix for hours every single day. Every day. My older brother was just in Indonesia and he ran, he ran into one of his college friends and he found out that this guy has been living in Bali on the beach for like 12 years, just surfing every day. And he sent me a picture of him and he has this huge beard and like long hair and you're just like, how do people get away with that? Right? We live in this society now where you can get away with living a life of remarkable leisure instead of remarkable labor. And so when Paul is calling us to look at his lifestyle of labor, hard labor for the sake of the gospel, I think we all need to pay attention. Because this is actually going to, to poke at some of our idols that are in our own hearts. We all have the temptation every single day to do the exact opposite of what Paul was doing. That's the reality of our culture. And thankfully, Paul leads the way for us. He shows us what his lifestyle of gospel-driven labor looked like. Look at the language Paul is using here. He's not only sharing the gospel with them, he is even sharing his life with them. We could even say that. That may not only be like a metaphor. I mean, there's like kind of a physical like reality to that. Remember, Paul almost died multiple times for the sake of the gospel. Uh, right before he showed up in Thessalonica, while he was in Philippi, he was jailed. Uh, he was beaten. Before that, he was, he was stoned and left for dead outside, of, I think it was Lystra. And so he, you know, he may be actually not even using a metaphor here saying, I did not only speak the gospel to you, I gave my life. You see, when, when he says that he worked both day and night so that he would not be a burden to anyone in the church, what he is saying is that he essentially picked up a night shift so that he would be financially de- independent and he wouldn't have to be dependent on the finances of the church. Right? He's going to pay his own way. He's going to make sure as a missionary, he's paying his own way on the mission field. And so what he's doing is he's working through the night in order to pay for himself and to take care of himself financially. His missionary work was self-funded so that he wouldn't have to take the funds from this church, this small new baby church. Paul's remarkable labor for the gospel is evident. And so there's so much that we can learn here. We need to be encouraged to sacrifice our time, to sacrifice our leisure, to sacrifice our comfort and our energy for the sake of the gospel. I mean, this is a message to those who are going to RFK. This is a message for those who are going to Estonia. 
when, you, when you're in intensive ministry, there are long days and sometimes very long nights. And so be encouraged. We are constantly, however, bombarded with these messages that we need to make time for ourselves. Right? Don't be spent for the sake of the gospel. Make time for yourself. You need to prioritize yourself. You need to engage in self-care. Now, I think we need to strike a balance here. There's a sense of truth in that we should make sure that we are investing in our own spiritual good. We should be spending time alone in God's word. We should make, make sure that we're spending time with our families. However, if your idea of self-care is self-indulgence, then you got the entire idea of the gospel wrong. If you, if you think uh, after a long day uh, or a long week and you come home and say, you know, I just need to care for myself. Hey, Netflix, what are you doing for the na- next eight hours? Right? You got self-care all wrong. That's not self-care. That is self-absorption. That is self-focus. That's self-prioritization at the expense of everyone else. When you think of what Jesus did for self-care, he did something remarkably different. Yes, he got away from the crowds. Yes, he got away from ministry. Yes, he got alone. To do what, though? To pray all night. To pray all night. That was his self-care. What was Jesus' self-care like? I'm going to go into the wilderness for 40 days and fast. Spend some time with Jesus, or with God, right? It's Jesus spending time with his Father, right? Um, <laughs> And he's spending time fasting. I mean, how many times have you heard that in like one of these popular so-called Christian uh, books out there? Hey, you need some self-care. You need to fast for like a week. No, that, that, that has never been said by any pop level Christian author ever. No one's going to tell you that. And yet that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus cared for his soul. I'm going to go fast. I'm going to go spend my entire evening in prayer on my face before my Father. That's what biblical self-care looks like. As I mentioned in in our announcements earlier, I want to bring this back up. Uh, There is an elderly woman in our church who is looking for help this weekend to move across town. This might be an opportunity for you to practice this type of remarkable labor for the gospel. Selfless, remarkable labor for the gospel. Now, the second element of Paul's model that he he portrays to us is the fact that he modeled uh, this remarkable labor in a specific context. His labor was in the context of suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. We've seen this in chapter 1, Paul's example to the Thessalonians, which he modeled was one that was in extreme circumstances. His example was provided in the face of hardship. You know, in order to to see someone's uh, leadership fleshed out, it's helpful, especially when we're talking about like example leadership, leadership by example, it's helpful to see that person operate in the midst of turmoil. It's helpful to see someone who you respect as a leader, you're looking to for an example, it's helpful to see that individual when everything goes wrong. 
to see how they conduct their life in that sort of a situation. Right? You want to see that person functioning as a leader when everything seems to hit the fan. Right? How does that person respond when life actually gets real? Right? How does that person respond when, when he or she gets mocked? How, how does he respond when his business partner betrays him? How does the mother respond when she finds out that her, her, her coming daughter has Down syndrome? How does the father respond when he realizes his son doesn't really care about sports at all? How does the mentor respond when he loses everything in an unexpected stock market crash? That's what we want to see. We want to see how the woman responds when, when she finds out her husband is cheating on her. That is a, a, an example that you want to seek out. How are they responding when everything gets difficult? How does the pastor respond when, when his key ministry leader decides to walk away from the faith? How does the missionary respond when she realizes the rest of her team are being uh, uh, moved to a different city? They're being relocated by the mission organization. How does she respond then? It's one thing for someone to offer you an example of how you ought to live when life is peachy, but it's a completely different thing to see someone's example when all seems to be lost. That's the type of ministry example we want though. Because let's be real, like when, when, when everything is easy, when everything is going your way in life, it's easy to be an example to other people. That's not when it's hard to be examples to other people. But Paul's Example here was offered to the, the Thessalonians when life was difficult. And we see his example was unwavering even when he was mocked, even when he was beaten, even when he was in prison. He had been chased out of city after city, and yet he's showing the Thessalonians the, the boldness that he had as he enters into their city and continues to preach the gospel in the face of hostility. That's the type of example that we as members of the church need. Individuals who are able to remain faithful to the gospel even when things turn into chaos. We need to see people walking to the front lines as fire, as the bullets are being fired at them. We need church leaders who are willing to stand up for the gospel in the midst of a hostile nation. We need people in the church like you who say, I don't care what the culture says about me being woke enough. I want to be faithful to what the gospel says and what the word of God says. We need students who will walk onto a college campus with the gospel on their lips, even though people are staring at them, mocking them. That's what we need an example of. And so, look to Paul. Look to the Thessalonians. Who, who modeled their lives after Paul. Look to Christ, who stared suffering in the face and yet remained faithful to the Father's plan. And as we follow Paul, as the Thessalonians followed Paul, hopefully we can then become a model to others as the Thessalonians became a model to others. So let's follow Paul's example, example by laboring for the gospel in the face of persecution. The third element we see here is that Paul's example uh, was actually for the good of the church. So he's laboring for the gospel day and night in the midst of suffering for the good of the church. We see this at multiple times in our passage. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Look at verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Then he says in verse 10, you are a witness and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, each one of you with encouragement and and we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Here we begin to see Paul's motivation. Right Before we're getting a description of the way he lived his life, he lived his life laboring for the church, he's, he's living his life in the midst of suffering, but here we see his motivation. His motivation was the good of the church. His motivation was his love for this church. Right? What drove Paul to labor so intensely over the gospel? A couple of answers are, are provided here in our passage, and the first one is that he had a deep, sincere love for this church. And this is important for us to think about. We need to recognize the importance of having a, a proper motivation, especially when we think about doing gospel ministry. It's so easy to have our, our motives warped and to do gospel ministry for the wrong reasons. I mean, think about it. Uh, I think many of us here, we've, we've had the tendency probably at one time or another to label, labor for the gospel out of guilt or out of obligation, rather than out of love for God's church. What's that look like? Think about it. Maybe you find yourself sometimes uh, spending a lot of me time, right? Self-absorbed, spending a lot of time on yourself. Maybe you had a weekend where you spent a lot of time watching movies or playing video games. And then you hear a message like this, And all of a sudden, you feel your motives starting to creep up. And the motives you feel are guilt and shame. You know there's an obligation to be laboring for the gospel, and you're spending all of your time on yourself. And you begin to feel guilty. And so we decide, okay, I need to serve the church more out of a sense of guilt. But notice this. When you are feeling guilty for not serving, and then you're trying to feel better about yourself by serving... Your labor is not for the church. Your labor is actually to provide your guilt some relief. Your labor is actually just for yourself. You see, in that situation that so many of us find ourselves in, our labor for the church is actually motivated by selfish reasons. We are serving so that we don't feel guilty anymore. We are serving so that we feel better about ourselves. That's not the type of motivation that Paul is, is operating out of. He's not motivated by a sense of, of guilt or just merely obligation. No, he's motivated by love. He's motivated by thanksgiving. His motive is not self-seeking. It is others-oriented. Paul's motivation is not guilt. It is his love for the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul is referring to his own ministry uh, as though he were a mother caring for a newborn child. Notice what he says in verse 8. He's, he's not only sharing the gospel, he's sharing his entire life with the church. And then he provides this reason, because you had become so dear to us. Here we see that, that Paul is patiently serving this church out of love. He is ready to endure like a mother with a newborn crying baby because he, he affectionately cares for this church. Notice in verse 12, then he, here he's comparing his ministry to that of a father, exhorting his son out of love and kindness. So notice, I mean, we were actually joking about this before the night began, how when you often, often when you read Paul, you're kind of just left going, man, this guy just seems very grumpy. He seems very agitated. He seems pretty angry, especially when you read like 1 Corinthians or Galatians. And yet here, you don't have that. Uh, Matt Pierce, is, he's here tonight. He's going to be teaching next week. We were actually teaching, teaching through a class on Sunday mornings here uh, at the church. And it, it, it was funny because someone in the class was like, isn't Paul just like all about the truth? Like he was just correcting people. He was drilling them with the truth. He wasn't going to allow people to be soft. He was hard. And Matt's like, um, he read this verse. <laughs> like a mother, like a mother <laughs> nursing her child. That doesn't seem like Paul, right? And the, the guy kind of stops and he thinks about it. He's like, huh, okay, that's interesting, right? It's like, that's not the type of Paul we're used to. I mean, look at this. He's patient. He's gentle. He exhorts, but he does so with kindness, with encouragement. He's driven by love for the church. That's his motive. His motive isn't guilt. It's not obligation. It is genuine love, Think about this. In order for us to actually be patient with someone, in order for us to be gentle with someone, we first have to love them. Think about it. When, when someone proves to be a difficult person, when someone proves that they are worthy of patience, right, the, the way to, to serve that person is not to just try to muster up patience. Actually, patience is the result of your love for that person. When someone is spitting insults or questioning your character, it's actually really difficult to, to respond purely in patience and gentleness unless there is love that's preceding that patience. You see, when there is love undergirding your relationship with that person, then you are going to be far more prone to respond with gentleness and with patience when that person begins to show you cruelty. cruelty right? A mother's love for her child, as she stays up all night to an unconsolable baby, who just cries and cries and is angry. Why does she do that out of love? Why does the father respond to his, his wayward son with encouragement and, and kind and gentle exhortations instead of cruelty, instead of abuse? It's love. Love is what is behind that sort of response. Love is what drives healthy ministry in the church. So, with that said, we ought to seek to, to model 
Paul's model. We ought to seek to replicate Paul's example. And so what we need to do is be on our knees asking God to help us to model that sort of reaction to others, to to foster within us that sort of motivation, a love for others instead of some sort of obligation or, or guilt motivation. Now, with that said, the fourth and final aspect of Paul's example that we are to Uh, uh, follow is the fact that Paul suffered for the gospel, he labored for the gospel, he did this for the good of the church, uh, for the good of the church, and all of this was done to the glory of God. Again, here we see that we are speaking about Paul's motivation for gospel ministry. Here again, he's talking about what is driving his love for the church. What is driving his motives? What what is driving his dedication to this church? It is the glory of God. The glory of God is what is behind Paul's ministry, his, his selfless labor for this church. So where do we see this come up in the passage? Actually, it's, it's littered throughout this passage. Uh, as we were writing up the notes today, we were looking at this final section and like, oh, well, it's ba- I, I just basically have to list the whole entire chapter in order to show you this. So I didn't give any verses there in your notes. So let me just show you all of the different ways in which God's glory is clearly demonstrated to be Paul's motive for gospel ministry. First off, notice how many times Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of God. Verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Verse 8, we were ready to share with you the gospel of God. Verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. That may not seem like that big of a deal to you, that Paul is referring to the gospel as the gospel of God. But we can't miss the fact that the gospel is, by its very nature, God-centered. God is the one who plans the gospel in eternity past. It's his plan. He is the one who created the world in preparation for the gospel. Even the fall of mankind was not outside of God's plan to implement the gospel into history. Revelation 13.8 talks about this. Before the foundations of the world were even laid, there was a book, and its title was The Lamb Who Was Slain. So before God even created, there was a book titled, The Lamb Who Was Slain. So, before God even created, this was part of the plan. Even the fall fit into this plan. There is no lamb who was slain unless there is a fall. So before the world was created, there was already a fall in mind. Not to say that God was the ultimate cause of that. However, he is capable of working even the fall into his very plan. Next, we see God sent his son in order to accomplish the gospel. God sent Jesus with the intention of slaying him on the cross. Remember the name of that book, The Lamb Who Was Slain, that was written before the foundations of the earth. God sent his son with the intention of his son dying on the cross so that God's wrath could be poured out on his son in order to redeem people like you and I who deserve that wrath to be poured out on us. We now have redemption through the son. Next, God raised his son from the dead in order to validate the gospel. You see, the gospel was planned by God, it was accomplished by God, and it was all done for God's glory. 
God is the primary actor of the gospel and he is the goal of the gospel. And therefore, we cannot miss the fact that Paul over and over again in this passage refers to the gospel as the gospel of God. This is God's story. This is God's plan. And so if you are the center of your understanding of the gospel, then you have the gospel wrong. This, the, this gospel message is not ultimately about us. It's about God. It's about God's glory. It's about bringing God the glory that he, he rightly deserves. The good news is about Jesus Christ bringing us to God so that we might glorify God. It is God's message. So with that say, said, we see a number of other ways in which God's glory is at the center of Paul's motivation. Verses 3 and 4. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Notice this, not to please man, but to please God. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Notice how Paul is specifically talking about his motivation here. He's not motivated by the praise of man. He's not motivated by receiving glory from people. His motive is to please God. His motive is to bring glory to God. We all face these sorts of temptations at a motivational level. So think about this. We all, every single person in this room, we all want to receive glory from other people. You may not use that word. You may not use that sort of terminology, but but do you not want other people's respect? Do you not want other people to like you? Do you not want other people to honor you? Do you not want other people to think highly of you? I think all of us would say yes, and we would do so with a resounding yes. We all want that. We all crave those things. We do things in order to be liked by other people. We do things so that we might be thought well of. We want to be held in high esteem by our peers and by other people. We crave other people's respects. We want to be honored. That's the type of thing Paul is speaking about here. He says that he and his companions resisted the temptation to demand respect and honor from people comes up two times in verse 4 and then again in verse 6. Clearly this was on Paul's mind. Clearly this was a temptation. And this is a temptation that everyone in this church will face. Everyone here at Golden Hills, here in this Kairos ministry, we all will face this. We all face the temptation for living for the praise of man. We all want the culture and the people around us to respect us. I mean, think back to our conversation earlier about suffering. Unless you are living for the glory of God and not your own glory, you will not face suffering well. When the culture begins to press you and when the culture begins to to mock you and and derive you and seek to uh, harm you, if you are living for your own glory, you're going to cave underneath that pressure. However, if you are living for God's glory, then your own welfare is far less important. Think about it. If we are to live for our praise, then we're going to fold the moment someone comes to us and scrutinizes us. I mean, if Paul lived for his own honor, he would have been a far less effective missionary because he would not have entered into Thessalonica with boldness. 
Instead, he would have entered into Thessalonica with timidity because he was afraid of what other people might think of him or what they might do to him. And yet, because he was being motivated by the glory of God, it changed his entire ministry. It enabled him to face suffering well. You see, we need to evaluate how we can seek God's glory in everything that we do as a church. And maybe that seems really impractical. Maybe that seems really intangible to you. So let me give you something that's a little more tangible. Resist the temptation to seek your own honor. Start there. As you resist that temptation to seek your own honor, it's going to give you a a sense of urgency to seek God's honor. That's because people-pleasing, that temptation of people-pleasing is the antithesis of seeking Christ's honor. When you are seeking to please other people, all you are doing is you are seeking your own glory, you're seeking others' respect, you're seeking the praise from other people instead of seeking Christ's glory. And so resist that temptation. That's a practical, tangible way for you to seek God's glory. Fight against your temptation to seek your own glory something that we face every single day. So look to Jesus. If you want an example other than Paul, look to Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being treated as a servant. Think about that. Jesus, the creator of all things, was treated as a detestable criminal servant placed on a cross by his own creation, the people that he came to redeem. That's what he took on. That's the sort of of God-honor, God-glorifying mentality even Jesus had. And so, as we're bringing all of this to a close, let me just point us, point our attention to verses 11 to 12. Look what we find here. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. So we've had this long example, this long detailed explanation of how Paul lives his life for God's glory. And now we see he is calling us to do the same. He's exhorting us to walk in a manner worthy of God who is calling us to his own kingdom and he's calling us to his own glory. He's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of God. So so look to Paul's example and learn from him. Look to Christ's example, more importantly, and learn from him. Seek to emulate the selfless, remarkable labor for the gospel. Seek to emulate their, their willingness, both Christ and Paul's willingness to proclaim the gospel even in the midst of a hostile world. Seek to live your life for the good of the church and seek to do all of this for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we...